The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a new dog in the McClanahan household. He's a sweet dog. We think he's a coarse-haired border collie, and we joke that he would rather make hugs, not herds. Still, he is a dog, and if he is to be in my household, he needs to be domesticated. He needs to learn where to relieve himself, what things he should not chew on, and to be on a leash so that he doesn't dart off into the street to try to herd the neighborhood cats. Apparently, that's the only thing he actually wants to herd, or cats. Of course, most of the domestication of Hank was done in previous centuries, as border collies became companions to Scotsmen like myself, who had sheep to navigate through highland terrain. These ancient dogs and men, you see, they made a pact. The dogs would help the men shepherd their sheep if the men would provide some food for them and they didn't have to go off and hunt. So the wild beast was tamed, and he is now so docile that he only wants to snuggle. He oozes comfort and joy, a constant companion who will always obey, rarely challenge, and gently serve his master. Well, you might have guessed that I'm setting you up for a contrast, and you would be right. You see, in Advent, we have a, a hero, really, John the Baptist. We always speak of him, usually Advent 2 and Advent 3. And uh, John was, well, never domesticated. We are here about his uh, weird outfit he wore, the camel's hair with the leather uh, waist. And most of all, we recall what he ate, don't we? The wild honey, which, by the way, you pay a fortune for at farmer's markets. Uh, but the locusts, in particular, jump out. Don't knock it if you haven't tried it. It's a common food product all over the world. But anyway, nothing about John says conformity. He was the original punk rocker, the outsider, the rebel, who didn't just talk about speaking truth to power. He did so at the cost of his head on a platter. And his mission was clear. Like Isaiah, the mission was to call Israel to repentance, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. As the old bumper sticker says, Jesus is coming. 
look busy. John was functioning a bit like a border collie, actually, snipping at the heels and barking at sheep who were straying from the fold. He knew his mission was not to make friends and influence people, but rather to convict people of their sin, so that when the holy messenger of God came, came, and he would soon, they would be ready to hear it, and they would be able to stand in his presence. John the Baptist is the hero of Advent because our work is really not so different from his. The mission of the church is still to call the world to repentance and to prepare the sheep of God for his eventual return. Such a return is often embarrassingly predicted, you know, like Harold camping, and it's going to be on this date because I've run the numbers in the Old Testament or something like that. Certainly such a return of Christ is often mocked. It's usually just ignored. But the season of Advent exists to remind us that Jesus really will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is going to happen. We proclaim that the judge of all the earth will come again. And when he does, the mockers will be silenced and the faithful will be rewarded. But unlike John, we have conformed. We have been domesticated. The church is often the very picture or icon of sort of going along to get along, of normalcy. Imagine a picturesque portrait, for example, of a small town square or a countryside. Can't you just see the, the docile little church off on a cobblestone street or nestled in the forest? I mean, it really is just part of our civic life now. But do you know what happens when things get domesticated? They lose their edge. Their teeth grow dull. They're ignored. They become safe. They become normalized. The beast is no longer a threat. Now he sits next to us on the couch, you see. He's just one of the family. And that, to me, seems like a pretty good description of the way the church operates within Christendom. The church helped to give rise, of course, to the life that we all enjoy. But now that we're enjoying it, we can just get rid of the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I am all about the ubiquity of Christian truth and values and virtues and justice and the fruits of the Spirit. You know, love and patience and gentleness and goodness and kindness and self-control. I want those things to be everywhere. I don't want it just to be reserved for just a handful of people, the select few, the elect, or whoever it might be. No, even the law of God, even the Old Testament law, is a source of incomparable good. I want those things to be known by every human being on earth. The problem is once they get to be everywhere, it's normal, you see. It loses its strength, its power. And so we've stopped looking really anything like John the Baptist, and now the church often acts a little bit more like a retailer. You know, we got a product or service that we're willing to, to offer you. It won't cost you that much, maybe 1% or 2% of your annual income. But just like the dog and the man, you see, they made that agreement back in the day. They said they would each sacrifice a little to coexist. We think we can do the same. But should we? Is a domesticated church still the church of Jesus 
Christ? Have we become too nice? Is it even possible for followers of Jesus to be too nice? Well, let's just say that we agree, for now, as a thought experiment, that the answer to that is no, that, that you can't have a true domesticated Christian church, that, that a domesticated church that has lost its bite, that has capitulated or compromised with all of the forces that would have us give up our sacred confessions, that's no church at all. Let's just say for the sake of argument that there is some line that you can cross, that once you cross it, you're not a church anymore. You've become too tame, and you lose your churchly credibility. Well, then the question is, well, how do we get it back? How do we uncross the line? How do we maintain our John the Baptist street cred? What are the issues or the ideas or the proclamations on which we have lost our nerve? Well, and of course, this would point to all the places that we disagree in the life of the church today. Some say we should be like John the Baptist and boldly proclaim socialism. And some say capitalism. Some say wealth should be redistributed in the name of the poor. Some say private charity is the best way to do that. Some are pro-choice and some are pro-life. Some say marriage is understood in one way, and the same with gender. Others say it is time to prophetically call for change. You see, it's not like there aren't a lot of people who agree that the church shouldn't be domesticated and we should maintain our John the Baptist edge about us. The question is, in what direction would a more radical voice take us? How would we know if it's the right one? If well-meaning Christians are on both sides of so many issues, will the real John the Baptist please stand up? But rather than take it issue by issue, I just want to try to get at the heart of what John the Baptist was saying. When you are following Jesus Christ, you have left every idol behind. You must commit yourself wholeheartedly to who Jesus is and what or who he represents. You must prioritize this God and his word above the wisdom of men. You must, without blinking or flinching or second-guessing, disavow worldly influences. There must be no question in your mind that Jesus is king. In short, you must repent and believe the good news that the kingdom of God has come near and that the king is actually ruling and reigning this earth right now, even when it looks like the exact opposite is true. To hold these biblical positions, especially on these moral issues, like being pro-life, or that marriage is between a man and a woman, that God created us male and female, or holding individuals, not groups, but individuals accountable for their sins. I don't think these should be hard positions for Christians to hold. If the day comes, and many fear that day could be near, when some basic Christian positions are intolerable to the world, well, we'd better channel our inner John the Baptist real quick, because we'll be on the outside looking in. And we better have the fortitude and the confidence to be willing to proclaim God's word, even if it is out in the wilderness. But like John the Baptist, 
Whenever and wherever we proclaim God's word, know that God will use that word to call his people and to build his kingdom. As it says in Isaiah elsewhere, the word of God never returns empty. You see, John was a person of joy because he only had one mission and he had an audience of one. If and when we can also dedicate our lives to that same audience of one and that same mission, then that same joy can be ours. For unlike the world, God is actually far less concerned about how effective or successful we are. His call to us is to be faithful. So may the Spirit of God give us courage and faith and strength so that we would know the joy of serving God and God alone.